You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello. And welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a comedian comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. We recorded today's interview during the first week in June, a time which saw the issues of police brutality, institutional racism, and flat-out bigotry towards Black people in America boil over as countless Americans broke quarantine to protest the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others at the hands of the police in this country every year. I discussed with my producers if I should even talk about what is happening in the world right now. I don't know, it just felt so incongruent and lip service to be like, Black Lives Matter, now here's Judd Apatow talking about Pete Davidson. It's hard to talk about, but that is one of the great, useful things comedy can truly do. It has the ability to discuss hard topics. It fosters conversation. This week's guest is Eric Andre, host of Adult Swim's The Eric Andre Show and star and co-writer of the upcoming Netflix narrative prank movie Bad Trip. Eric's also a stand-up comedian, and his first hour special, Legalize Everything, comes out on Netflix on June 23rd. These past few weeks, Eric has joined in the widespread protests and has called for the Los Angeles police chief to be fired. We booked Eric a while ago, but after recent events, Eric said he wanted to talk about a joke from his new Netflix special about cops, the TV show that for over 30 years has served essentially as propaganda for police departments across the world. Eric focuses on the theme song Bad Boys, which calls everyone the cops interact with bad, as if all cops are the good guys. As we talked about in the interview, Eric wrote this joke over a decade ago. The fact that it's still relevant today says everything. The wild thing is, days after our conversation, the Paramount Network canceled cops. So, here is Eric Andre. Do you remember the show, Cops? Did you guys ever watch the show, Cops? Is it just me, or is reggae the most inappropriate music they could have picked? to open up the show, cops. You can't slap reggae over police brutality footage and call it a day. That's not an intro for a show. The intro to cops is like, you're under arrest, you unarmed, innocent black teenager. Boom! Jamaica Mon gone downtown. Rastafari, welcome to the island of peace and purity. 
purchase my boots, you disenfranchised transgender prostitute. Bam! Jamaica is a tropical island paradise. Our national currency is the delicious coconut. This is a system invented by rich, white, Christian, heterosexual businessmen. And if you don't match that description, then it is my job to subjugate and oppress you, motherfucker! For I am your judge, jury, and executioner! So I'm here with the comedian behind the joke you just heard, Eric Andre. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Um, I, you know, I want to start with uh, how are you doing? I mean, if you're comfortable, can you tell me what your last couple weeks have been like? Uh, I'm good. I've been drinking too much and, uh, the world's falling apart in a race apocalypse and we're in a global pandemic and, uh, yeah, we're doomed. But other than that, I'm fantastic. Um, I saw that you were at a number of protests. What did you see? Uh, a lot of full frontal nudity. I'm going to be honest with you. Really? No. Um, I, uh, I saw what everybody, what you're seeing on social media, you know, I'm seeing, I've been fortunate. All the ones I've been to have been pretty peaceful and civil. So Mm. I think the news is focusing on the wrong part of it. They're focusing on like vandalized Starbucks and it's just like, oh man, it's not about that guys. Pay attention. I actually saw a lot of a very diverse group of youth um actually for the first time being very proactive like Mm -hmm. they protested outside of mayor garcetti's house and asked him to um defund the police and now he is defunding the police so i actually feel like there's a lot of he didn't defund them but he he allocated some of their money which is like out of control they're taking the majority of the city's budget into other departments, I guess. So I think it's, they said it was the biggest civil rights march, as far as numbers, turnouts worldwide in like modern history of civil rights marches. So it's been going really good. It's been really productive. And I think that like we're taking our generations, taking the power into their own hands and putting stuff on social media because the media is just portraying like violence and looting and they're not portraying how how the police brutality is continuing and how peaceful the protesters are and how proactive and organized the protesters are. And I'm like really proud of my generation for the first time in like forever. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's been going really good. It's been really, I think we're getting the world's attention now in a positive way. Yeah. Um, so to get into the special and the joke, you know, I want to start with just talking about Cops, the TV show. What was your, before even writing the show, what was your relationship to your, the show? What did you think about it? Had you watched it? Yeah, I grew up watching that show. So it was just always on and always fascinating. 
And uh, they definitely downplay the police brutality. That's the farce of cops. But the, the underlying subtext to cops is it's like that Bill Hicks joke. State power will always win and we'll bust down your door and get you anytime we want. I also read some article about how like cops in less violent towns when they're filmed on the show cops, they kind of ratchet it up and like people have been killed and hurt because the cops were kind of showing off for the camera. Excuse me. Rude. <laughs> Did you listen to that podcast running from cops? No. For those who haven't, it was a podcast essentially about how they shoot cops and how the cops cops use that show as essentially propaganda and like how they film how they film cops, right? Now yeah, how, how they, they shoot cops with guns. Yes, yes. How they film it and how they frame cops as the good guys and how the theme song in the century is like these are the bad people, like that dichotomy right. and how that's at the core of it. Um yeah. it's interesting, if only because you have Part of the, what the podcast talks about is how they convince people or essentially don't actually get clearances from people or they say they do or they get people all the influences. And it's interesting in so much as you have experiences yourself with getting clearances from people from the pranks. Yeah. Release form. Well, I heard that they do a dirty trick where they go to the person who's arrested in the back of the car. They say, hey, can we release you? And the person's thinking like, oh, I'm going to be released from these handcuffs. So they're like, yeah. And it, it's like secret code for like, a verbal release consent for the filming. So it's like, I heard the producers have a dirty trick. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is, that is pretty dirty. The podcast makes it seem like they do that. And the cops make it seem like if you sign a release, you're more likely not to get time in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cause I was like, how are they getting release forms for these people? Like, I wouldn't want that footage out there. So. It is unethical <laughs> <laughs> producing cops. Um, how and when did the idea for this joke come to you? Uh, I was, the joke is so old. I was on a treadmill at the gym at the YMCA in Brooklyn when I was like 23 years old, jogging and watching cops on the TV. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the line of reasoning that led to, I want to talk about this on stage? I was only doing stand-up in those days. It was pre-Eric Andre's show, so all my writing was just writing for stand-up. So that was my only medium. Mm -hmm. That was my only outlet because it was like I could do it for free and I didn't need access to resources. Yeah. So you saw the show and just the spark came to you? Sort of how did the sort of idea of watching it then lead to whatever this... What did you see that you're like, oh, this is exactly what I want to be talking about? It's sort of that first stage of writing the joke. I was doing open mics and chicken shit shows all through New York and uh, I was just getting up every night and the jokes that worked stayed and the jokes that didn't work didn't stay and that joke not only works but it's evergreen so I was able to drag it across the years. I've heard you talk about consuming a lot of comedy albums and specials to see how different people did their versions of material. There's an episode of the Stones Throw podcast in particular where you sort of play tracks of some of your favorite albums uh, you play J. Anthony Brown, Eddie Griffin, George Carlin. So I'm sure you're aware that many different comedians have talked about police brutality before in comedy history in different ways. In, in what way did this feel like your way into this subject? Or even looking back on it, why does it sort of fit into your voice? I think it's specifically about the show Cops. And I get to do like a goofy reggae act out. So it's like high brow, low brow. That's yeah. the formula, you know? <laughs> Was the joke ever longer? Or was it always ultimately like about this 
size. That joke specifically, it was always kind of, I think it's actually at its longest now, which is the opposite of most jokes. Most jokes get like, they're like long and rambly and kind of half baked. And then they Mm -hmm. start getting tighter and tighter and tighter and you edit it down. But that joke just grew from like when I was like 23. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, for a joke like this to work, as you mentioned, there's sort of a highbrow, lowbrow element. You have to sort of walk a line where you sort of have to be accurate and as harsh as possible with what the cops are saying, but not completely suck the air out of the room by being sort of too harsh, but also sort of clearly trying to balance it out. Right. With, you know, can you talk about coming up with the sort of three police lines? I, I did 85 shows in 47 cities last year before I taped the special. So I, I tested the shit out of every square inch, every line of every joke I made sure where you can hear the collective butthole clenching in the audience when they're uncomfortable with a joke or a premise, you know, or it's like too harsh mm-hmm. and then you can feel them start to relax. But the, the audience is constantly letting you know line by line what's working and what's not working. It's like instant feedback. For this, are you... Is there like an exact amount of like you want a little butthole clenching, but not too much? Because you still want there needs to be some tension with the first part because you are you want them to hear it. Yeah, I think it's got to be like the right kind of tension. I guess the right kind of butthole clenching, (laughs) (laughs) as they say. Yeah, as they say, Um, like a lot of comedians, you'll um, in interviews will describe things that you're doing is dumb as a way of saying, oh, it's silly. It's like, oh, it's just dumb. And I, and obviously the sort of reggae song functions that sort of way of being a sort of silly relief in the joke. But, you know, what does dumbness do? How does it sort of function in your ability to help communicate what you want in this joke or in general? Like, what is the value of it? What, what do you mean by dumbness? Like highbrow, lowbrow, like I was talking about? Yeah, yeah. Or the silliness or, I mean... The silliness. Yeah, I think that like... It takes the edge off while Trojan horsing your message that would be typically hard to swallow into people's brains. And comedy is like a way of coping with tragedy. I'm ordering sushi, if you don't mind, while I, while I talk to you. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not overthinking it. I wouldn't overthink it. Yeah. Um, I was talking to a coworker today, partly about interviewing you and just talking about in general, but the pressure when you are a black creator to sort of be a good representation in however you talk about subjects. And I feel like we're also talking about that there's a certain sort of seriousness that sometimes feels like it's put on even black comedians to talk about serious topics. Mm -hmm. Considering your career and as a person sort of who has studied comedy, do you think what it means in the context of history of comedy to sort of tackle issues both incredibly seriously, but also playfully? Do you think about... Yeah, I think that's the best way to serve the dish. I think that like, it's the only way you can communicate your message and get it to the people who need it is to put it into a joke. Uh, I want to talk to you about the performance of the joke, but... I want to talk about sort of performance generally. A lot of your jokes in the special are built around act outs. Right. Why is it? What do you like about sort of a performance driven style? What do you like? It's not even what I like. It's like, that's what the audience likes. Like anytime I try to be like a raconteur and like ramble on, then it just turns into a Ted talk. They want to, they, they, they want to see me shucking a jive. And <laughs> so got to give the, the internet what it wants. Um, 
So with the joke, how did the performance of this evolve over the course of the last tour specifically? I think that it wasn't so specific in the cop act outs. It wasn't so like, you're under arrest, you unarmed, innocent black teenager. It used to just be like something more generic. It was like, you're under arrest, you old crackhead. It was like 22-year-old me writing versus 36-year-old me writing. And like, I just like updated it a little bit. So it was like, now it's, you're under arrest, you unarmed, innocent black teenager. Kiss my boots, disenfranchised, transgender prostitute. I think I, I put more thought into what the cop was saying to the mm-hmm. victim. I was talking to Sarah Squirm, who was your opener for the Legalize Everything tour. Um, yeah. And, and we're talking about, especially in this part of this joke in particular, there's sort of a violence to your performance. Like you are, you scream so hoarse at the end of you lie on the ground. She mentioned yeah. that, that happened to her every time. Where does that come from? That sort of like I love I love bad brains. I love like punk and metal and noise music and the boredoms and Mike Patton and Dead Kennedys and and all like the grindcore bands and metal bands, Cryptopsy, Origin, Dillinger Escape Plan. I grew up listening to loud music and avant-garde jazz. You know, John Zorn and Albert Eiler and like Coltrane's later albums. Like I like it like loud and like, like it feels like your brain is swelling (laughs) while you're listening to it. (laughs) I also love Chris Farley. Mm -hmm. That was one of my favorite comedians when I was a kid. And I love wrestling. I love WWF growing up. So those guys are always like screaming and yelling like caveman. There's something primal about it. You mentioned the idea that you think sort of the best comedy is a way of coping with tragedy or processing it. Is that screaming cathartic for you? And especially talking about yeah. like this. That- yeah. I'm also very, I'm very nervous on stage. So it helps like get over my nerves. So as you mentioned, this joke is you've had for a while and there are other jokes throughout the special that I sort of noticed. I was like, Oh, I remember that joke from different parts from following your career. You know, the tour and the special is called legalize everything, you know, one sort of how did you come out with that framing and sort of what what does it mean for your jokes to be packaged with under that sort of header? Like, what does that mean to you as it relates to sort of material that you've had? I usually don't like to explain it because I think it's not the, the job of the artist to explain the art because then they sound pretentious. I think it's like it takes away from the listener's interpretation of yeah. the art. Like, I, I can explain it and I will, but it's going to flatten your experience and you're going to lose something with an explanation. Mm. That's why I like that Stanley Kubrick never did an interview. Cause he's like, if I start to explain it, it's like when you explain a joke, it just like, it, it, it like takes away from your experience. It becomes only your experience. Like it is a way of ha- understanding yeah. your one intention, but it does make it so it's not as personal. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I, I came up with it. I like the anarchic spirit of the legalize everything. I like that it's tongue in cheek. Clearly, I don't want to legalize murder. <laughs> and like, uh, I like, and most of my jokes felt like they were, I was kind of like looking at my jokes on index cards on the floor before I built the set. It, and they were just a bunch of disparate jokes. And I was like, what are the recurring themes? A mm. lot of it's about drug use or partying, party experiences. 
race, politics, sex, uh, you know, and just like funny stories from my life, autobiographical stuff. So I was like, what, what can I, how can I package all this stuff? Mm -hmm. What's like the, the through line. And I just thought legalize everything has a funny ring to it. Yeah. The special shot in New Orleans and you, you start the special with a, a prank where you're playing a cop who's giving out drugs. Um, and I believe you pulled down your pants at some point. It's, it's in the vein of a lot of sort of cop. It's my old swan song. <laughs> yeah. It's in the vein of other, other cop related pranks you've done. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, the one where you play a cop who somehow handcuffed around a lamppost with his pants down and you're yeah. asking people for help or, yeah. um, the one where you get arrested by James Adomian, but then you start making out, um, yeah. in, in so much as what you're doing with the pranks and stand up are sort of different ways of communicating similar things, but ultimately the pranks are sort of a different point of view. Um, you describe the Eric Andre you play on the show as sort of your id or an impression of yourself to the nth degree, who is the Eric Andre in your standup? I think somewhere between me right now waiting for sushi and the Eric Andre show persona, which is like full <laughs> psychotic. <laughs> so there's uh, somewhere in the a height, a heightened version of myself, but not all the way heightened to the adult swim show. Is there is is that part of the reason why you decided to go back to stand up? Is you wanted to show people who I yeah. Well, I've been doing it longer than anything. I've been doing it longer than the Eric Andre show. I've been doing it for seventeen years. So I just wanted like a, a record. I wanted to like put all my jokes on wax and have a body of work to show off my stand up. Mm -hmm. And Netflix is great. And there's no bigger platform. There's no bigger yeah. stage than Netflix. So it was the perfect, perfect opportunity. We'll be right back with more Eric Andre. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. 
The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And we're back with Eric Andre. So I was thinking, preparing for this, about Sasha Brown Cohen's episode of WTF. Um, and there's this one moment that always stuck out with me of that interview where he's talking about sort of the rush he feels of doing a large prank and sort of his need to sort of chase it. And like as a high is like, once you do that, that's sort of the comedy you sort of want to keep on doing. You want to see what, keep on pushing it and raising the stakes as a person who did that, but then also is now coming back to stand up. How do you sort of capture the same sort of rush or urgency with your stand up, either for your audience or for yourself? Stand up is nerve wracking all the time too. That audience, even if they're there to see you, like if you don't bring the heat after a few minutes, they're like, fuck you. <laughs> so you always have to deliver Yeah. every time. You can't phone it in to stand up. Watching your special, which is there's an energy level of your special that is it's hard to describe, but it, I imagine it's hard to maintain that over shows and have audiences keep with you. Are there things? You oh, do? yeah, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I used to do three sets in a night and I told my agent, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, by the third set, I'm like, <gasps> I sound like I'm on my deathbed and I feel like it, too. And I was getting sick all the time. I'm like one set a night. That's all I can do. Even even that's exhausting. Do you? You know, there's some stuff that maybe capture on the show, but are there different types of things that you bring into the show to make sure the energy stayed up throughout, even for yourself or for the audience? Just ge- just general good health, like exercising, drinking a lot of water, meditating, eating healthy. It's like not the most sexy, fun answer. Yeah. I wish I was like cocaine, Robin Williams <laughs> or Richard Pryor. And I could tell you I was freebasing before the sets, but it's like... I'm like eating salads, man. I'm really <laughs> lame. I'm really like a boring suburban dad. And wow. uh, I would just like, I would do like vocal warm ups and shit. And I'm studying with a vocal coach. What did you learn? I've never heard that. What is, what have you learned from a vocal coach? You got to warm up your voice. You got to like put your voice on a straw and water and blow bubbles and go like, and like cool down your vocal cords and not talk after a show. It's a lot of work. It's a yeah. tremendous amount of work. Um, I think a, a lot of artists seek to create a space where they could communicate themselves. And, and you've talked about pursuing comedy and the arts um, in some interviews because you felt out of place where you grew up in Florida. I also think you described not wanting to pursue music because it the sort of industry was broken and sort of no matter how good you get, people just want Justin Bieber. So, I mean, in so much as that you pursued comedy where you have been able to build this specific fan base, you know, as you're playing these tour in really large venues, I mean, you played like Beacon Theater in New York. What does it feel like to have created this space for you? Oh my God, it's amazing. I mean, like I was so broke and, and, 
desperate and insecure and miserable throughout the majority of my twenties that I'm like so grateful and thankful that I have a job and I have a house and like you give a shit enough to interview me and like anybody's paying attention to me and Netflix has giving me a stand-up special. I'm like so so grateful. It could have gone could have gone really south if I stayed in my rap metal band from high school. So um I am I am well aware that I am lucky for the for the little bit of whatever success I got. When you there's um the story you've told about there's the summer you were essentially homeless. You you gave up your apartment, you slept on friends' couches, but sometimes you slept wherever you, you could and you described it as sort of giving yourself to the sort of gods of comedy or just sort of the craft or comedy to sort of prove your commitment. Now, so many years later, is is this sort of what you're hoping for? Was this what you're dreaming for? I mean, like either creatively or in terms of audience? This is like more than I expected. I mean, the the average musician, even like at their height, I think Billy Corgan says like the average band has like four great years and that's it that, that, that makes it. Mm-hmm. So I get to express like adult swim gives me carte blanche. You know, they let me do whatever I want. Netflix, let me say whatever I want. So I, I have like the most creative freedom and, and there's way less comedians on earth than there are musicians. So I feel like, um, I could stand out more. Yeah, you know, in a way that I couldn't with my music, my crappy music. To to zoom up further, you mentioned it being on Netflix with its millions and millions of subscribers. You know, the yeah. the, the special has a sort of anarchist message, an anti-establishment message, a, a sort of punk rock message. What does it mean to put that on Netflix? It's exciting. I think that, like, hopefully, it'll reach an even broader audience. And uh, I I almost try not to think about it. I get a little yeah. superstitious about that kind of stuff. A joke you do in the special is one, and I think I've seen you do it a bunch. It's just sort of like a good intro joke you often do, which is you're bluish, you're black and Jewish. And I bring that up because the history of comedy in this country is arguably created by sort of a dual track of black people and Jewish people. Yeah. A a history that I'm sure you're aware of. Considering that, you know, how do you think of yourself as part of that history? How do you identify as what do you hope to contribute to sort of that lineage? I don't know. I don't think about it in such like a heavy or like I'm just like a pioneer or like <laughs> I I don't know. I, I think uh I just try to do be good at my job and like I, I hope to like look back on my life and have like a good body of work. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not like I'm I'm groundbreaking. I'm a visionary and I'm taking my people to the promised land. I'm shepherding them like Moses. I'm the Moses of comedy. I don't, I don't know, man. I don't really think I, you think you, you've thought about it in more depth than I have. I don't know. I'll feel better once I'll feel better once it's out. I've been waiting so long to put out the special and the movie and season five. I just want this stuff out. Then I'll maybe, maybe I'll have a, more perspective mm. on it and what's, what's You're still in it. received by the public. I've been doing it in like a vacuum in a weird way. So I don't have know. you, have you started working on season five? Yeah, I'm almost done. We're like coming to the final weeks of editing. What can you say, if anything, 
what do you hope it captures? I mean, in so much as a continuation. I think it's our. I think it's our best season. I gained. I gained weight for it, and I got rid of all my body hair except my eyebrows for it, and I spray tanned every day, and I bleached my teeth, and um, Hannibal quits in the middle of the season, and we clone him, and we replace him with his clone. Uh, a lot of drama and action, high stakes. But it's also, we got the pranks down to a science now. After mm. the movie, we know exactly how to produce pranks and yield like such a high result that like every single episode is banging. It is by far the best season, I think. So, Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be able to produce pranks as a science? Because it's to, to the outside viewer, it seems like complete anarchy. I can't tell you, I can't tell you everything. I can, I can, I, I now know how to get people, how to coerce people into random pedestrians into a location that they normally wouldn't just hang out in, um, without blowing the prank or letting them have any idea what's about to transpire. This, you talked about the season being the best one. Is it partly because you were away from the show from longer than you were? I mean, it was, this was, we just know what to do, what not to do. And we learn from our mistakes. You learn from your mistakes over and over again. So we know who to hire, who not to hire. We know what bits when we're writing them will yield good results. And we know what yeah. writing is unproducible. Before, like season one, I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. There was like 14 different onion skin papers around my house that was like the script. Mm-hmm. And like I was updating it in a vacuum and not telling my crew like what the updates were. It was like all over the place. And now I'm just like a lot more organized and know what I'm doing. You just, you learn, you just learn through mistakes. Yeah. You mentioned that in previous interviews before, you mentioned you imagined this would be the final season, but that was before you started working on it. Now- yeah. And then I'm like, I love the show so much. What show will I have more creativity? Plus I'm looking at Always Sunny in Philadelphia going into their 17th season. I look at Curb Your Enthusiasm going into its 10th, 11th season. And I'm like, why would I get rid of this show? Why would I walk away from this? Adult Swim once more. So it's just like, there's no show where I'm going to have more creative freedom than yeah. this show. And I can, as long as I can pick it up and put it down whenever I want, which is, is the case, like, to me, I'm like, keep keep the door open. Because I, you've made it so whatever you want the show to be is what the show is. Yeah. Like if you yeah. wanted to have a different tone for a season, it could be whatever tone it is. Yeah, they are like the most supportive, nurturing, hands-off company ever. They're just like, yeah, whatever you want to do. Like they are just like invested in me and have been since, since the beginning. So I'm like, again, super grateful to be in business with them. And then it has not been announced when the bad trip is coming out. But no, we, we talk- should hear something. We should hear something soon. Yeah. We were going to announce it until we had a date, but Bloomberg Media like found out somehow. I don't know how. They're like spying around our emails or something. For people that sort of know you from your stand-up or, and, and the show, what does this sort of represent in sort of the arc of your career of like what you've been able to achieve with it? The movie is the first time we did pranks that had to be narrative. So we strung together 40 to 60 pranks, I'd say, into a cohesive narrative story, which is no small feat, but we accomplished it and it came out amazing. Plus, Rel is amazing in it and, and Tiffany Haddish is amazing in it. And Michaela Conlon, the, the cast, it's a small cast because you can't put a bunch of actors in it. You got to like 
keep the cast very minimal so you know exactly who's being pranked and who's not. Um, there's only four yeah. cast members, and they're they they're incredible. And Jeff Tremaine was our mentor the whole time. He he directed all the Jackass movies and Bad Grandpa, and he f- co-founded Jackass. And he he has you know 15 to 20 years more experience than we do. So um, he was like our Obi Wan Kenobi, mm-hmm. and uh, the final product is is amazing. I'm really really excited to release that. As a, as a follower of the prank form, do you feel like there's anything in it that really, be it not necessarily dangerous, but you've necessarily put pushed the form forward in any way? Well, there was there was danger. I mean, we got a knife pulled out on us the second day of shooting for sure. A lot of danger, very dangerous. But uh, I think this is the first like ethnic cast. This is the first like all people of color cast that um has done a prank thing i think that it's like this is the only prank movie where it's like it doesn't seem cynical or like punching down or being mean to the people we're pranking we're like we show like that humanity in americans throughout the movie which is exciting so i think we broke new ground hopefully So that sound means it's time for our, our final segment, which is our the laughing round. It's like a lightning round. God, that sound was incredible. <laughs> My ears are bleeding from that magnificent sound. It was like God's lips were pressed against my ears. Exactly. It's a, it's a wonderful sound. You um, know what I mean? Jesse yeah. Fox. I hear that sound every time, and I'm like, what a, what a sound. It's Pavlovian. I'm like salivating for my sushi whenever I hear that sound. It's like Pavlov ringing the bells for those dogs. <laughs> let's, hear it, let's hear it again. <laughs> oh, yeah. There it is. Oh, my gosh. Fucking love that shit, man. That that sound is a son of a bitch. <laughs> when it comes to sound, mm-hmm. <laughs> mamma mia! If I was in Italy right now, I'd say scatsalabobala. You know what I mean? I know totally. I mean, I know it's you my. You know sound. what I'm saying, my man? Come on, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> There's that sound again. Boom, 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 boom. Again, two times, 17 times. Since it's an audio podcast, I should let you know that he is putting his fingers in the air as if he's, I guess, yes, shooting guns. Yes, that sound is put in afterwards, they're going to, that no explanation needs. <laughs> yes. Um, do you have a favorite joke, joke, street focus, joke? Focus, man. Can you focus on the interview at hand? <laughs> yeah, of course. The best one is, what do you call a dick that meets a turn at a 90 degree angle? Poopendicular. <laughs> I've never heard that one. That's really funny. Uh, my friend Evan wrote it. Um, is there a joke or prank you wish you could steal in so much as it's another dimension where everything's exactly the same except for you get to have done this prank or get to tell this joke oh my gosh so many so many 
a joke. My favorite joke that I was like, why? I wish I wrote that is uh, that Patton Oswalt joke where he goes, I don't get people that like George Bush and they're not billionaires. They're like, hell yeah, man. I think George Bush is fucking awesome. He's like, holy shit, dude. How much do you make a year? They're like, oh, I only make like $30,000 a year, man. And he's like, oh, well, fucking Bush hates you, dude. Are you kidding me? He wouldn't, he wouldn't be caught dead with you. <laughs> it's a perfect synopsis. Yeah. Is there a prank you wish you could have done? Oh, man. So many. That's a hard question to answer. I think, uh, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of like, I like the Bruno prank in Ollie G show where he's like, He's getting those frat boys all riled up. He's like, yeah, say hi, get on the body pyramid. Yeah, we're all partying. Yeah. And then at the end, he's like, they're all hyped and shirtless on the beach. Like, yeah, they're doing all this like homoerotic suggestive stuff. And then at the end, he's like, all right, give a shout out to gay Austrian television. And they're like, wait, what? (laughs) What is this for? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Like, honestly... Anything Jackass or anything Sasha Baron Cohen, like the majority of their stuff is like, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? They're like um, Can you talk about, I'm, there's sometimes in interviews you won't talk about for legal reasons, but are there, considering that you do pranks without permit, I mean, you're sort of just out on the street. Can you talk about any interactions with the cops you've done while filming anything? I've been arrested a couple of times. But now we kind of know what to do and what not to do. At first, we didn't know what the fuck we're doing. So we're getting in a lot of trouble. Uh, what not to do? What? What is? How do you not get prank? How do you not get arrested when doing it? Well, I was like pranking the mayor one time with no permission, no permits. And like, there's nothing but cops in there. So they were like, what are you doing? And then they just arrested me. They're like, why are you doing this? I was like, I don't know. Are you allowed to? You... What do you, how do you get a clearance to essentially impersonate an officer? Is that as different? You can, you can, so I can impersonate an officer as long as I'm not arresting or detaining somebody or making somebody feel like their life is in danger. (laughs) Interesting. So I can't go up to them and be like, there's an active shooter, run, run for your life. Because if they have a heart attack or trip and fall, then we're in big, big doo doo. Uh, And I can't like detain them. I can't like, I can't rile them up in that yeah. way. I can rile them up in different ways. Is there uh, a joke or uh, just anything that you've done sort of comedically joke or prank or something that you've done that you're like, you thought this was really funny. You went through with it and then no one else has thought it's funny. There, no audience has received it and being like, we agree with this. You eventually sort of put it to bed and retired it. But you're like, I still think that's funny. You'll go to your grave being like, this is funny. Everyone else is wrong. No, a ton of a ton of stuff. Not everybody else is wrong. I think like the customer is always right, but uh, yeah, a ton of so you're constantly throwing spaghetti at the wall that like is cracking up you and your friends. But yeah, um, yeah, that's like the process. So many, I I, I don't I wouldn't know where to begin. Can you think of a recent one? Maybe uh, I we had this weird prank. It's so heady and hard to explain. Where I'm like. Season four, where like these guys were playing basketball, and I was dressed in a business suit, and my baby was up in the air with balloons, and I was like stealing the basketball from them and begging them to get my baby out of the sky, and then having these like internal moments of like uh, 
crisis and existential corporate crisis. It's it's mm. like listen to me. It's already <laughs> like if it takes yeah. that long to set up, you know you have an issue. So, you know, but I thought it was funny, but nobody else did. Do you have one thing you would want to either be the first thing listed in a obit or what you'd want them play in an memoriam? Like, this is the thing that captures my essence of what I've done, at least of what you've done so far. Of like, play this and my funeral and I will. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, the most popular are like Ranch It Up and Bird Up. Well, that stuff's the most popular. My sushi's here. I'm very excited. One second, let me grab my sushi real quick. Sure. Hey, sorry, man. No, it's okay. Had to get some sushi. I, I think is a, a nice way to wrap it up to end the the thread. Can you tell people what your sushi order is? Uh, oh, I got a lot of stuff. I got some uni. I got some. Chicken skin, chicken meatball, like yakitori. Um, I got a blue hand, a blue blue crab roll. I think I got a salad too. I think it's salad. Uh, that's it, man. All right. Well, enjoy. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Good luck. Bye-bye. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Legalize Everything on Netflix on June 23rd. Follow Eric at Eric Andre on Twitter or at Eric fucking Andre on Instagram. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcasts at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Yvonne Orji. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.